0: Good morning and welcome to Asia Pacific Currents this Saturday, the 24th of September. It is Grand Final Saturday here in Melbourne in the city from which Asia Pacific Currents is being broadcast. I'm Giselle Hannah and I'm taking you through to 9.30 this morning. Uh, For those of you in Melbourne, yes, we did have a very long weekend um, and I was very, very pleased to see so many of you out on the streets on Thursday rather than mourning the Queen, actually mourning the loss of land, the loss of culture well and the and the efforts to preserve culture of aboriginal people in this country asia pacific currents is brought to you by australia asia worker links and if you want to get in touch with us you can find us on the web at all the we're on facebook and twitter so look us up on those social media platforms Um, In the second part of today's program, I'll be speaking with Dr Tess newton Kane. She is a Senior Research Fellow at Griffith University and is an expert in Pacific Island politics and geopolitics. We're going to be talking about the constitutional crisis in Kiribati, which we've been covering um, for uh, some time, well, for the last couple of months um, on Asia Pacific Current. So we'll hear a little bit more about that in the second part of the show. But, of course, first up, news from around the region, and we're going to start in China. It's been a year since Labor activist Wang Jianbing and Me Too journalist Sophia Huang uh, Zhe-Quin disappeared into state detention. Although most details about their cases remain unclear, according to information from Friends, Wang's case... Has uh, now been sent to court after having been returned to the police for a second investigation. Wang's case has also been sent to court and the two are expected to face trial at an unknown date. The pair attended weekly social gatherings at Wang's apartment in Guangzhou before disappearing on the 19th of September 2021, losing contact with loved ones while making their way to the airport. Wang was travelling to the United Kingdom to pursue gender studies at the University of Sussex through a British government funded um, scholarship and Wang was accompanying her for part of the way. Wang is a labour and disability rights defender who has spent more than 16 years working in China's not-for-profit sphere. Wang made significant contributions to advancement of labour rights through her journalism, which exposed the prevalence of sexual harassment and violence in workplaces in China. Along with over two dozen civil society organisations, China Labor Bulletin calls for the immediate release of Wang and Huang and, until then, for their legal cases to be handled in compliance with all relevant domestic and international laws. And in India, three workers of an illegal coal mine located at Lido in Tinsukia district of Assam died on Sunday night after allegedly inhaling toxic gas. According to local police, the incident took place around 11pm at a new rat hole mine located inside a forest area on the Assam Arunachal Pradesh border. The mine is operated by David Hasing, a resident of Arunachal Pradesh. The deceased workers, all from Assam, were identified as Sahidul Islam and Hussein Ali of Bongolgan district and Asmat Ali of Golpara district. Instead of informing authorities about the incident, the other workers and supervisors at the mine dug holes near the mine and buried the dead workers. The police said, adding that they are yet to ascertain whether the bodies were buried on the Assam side of Arunachal Pradesh. <coughs> Excuse me. The police have identified ha, have detained 5 people including workers and are questioning them about the location of the bodies. Efforts are on to trace the owner and arrest him. A case of murder, c- criminal conspiracy, theft, causing disappearance of evidence under sections of the Indian Penal Code have been registered and investigations are underway. Moving now to Lebanon. Lebanese banks have said they will soon announce a three-day closure next week over mounting security concerns following a series of incidents involving people seeking access to their savings by entering banks armed with guns. On Friday, eight banks were held up by depositors who demanded their own money. Um in addition to a spate of hold-ups this week spurred by frustration over a spiralling financial implosion with no end in sight. Last month, a man was detained after he held up a Beirut bank to withdraw funds to treat his sick father, but was released without charge after the bank dropped its lawsuit against him. Groups representing depositors believed this would work in their favour as security service and other government personnel would also not be able to access their own accounts while the banks were closed, potentially increasing the government's urgency to find a solution. Lebanon has been grappling with a severe economic crisis since 2019, leaving most people locked out of their bank accounts and unable to pay for basics. Poverty in Lebanon has drastically increased during the past year and now affects about 80% of the population. And in Myanmar... Five Unionists, including two from the Industrial Workers' Federation of Myanmar, were violently attacked and arrested by military security officers in Yangon on the 13th of September. The Unionists were arrested on their way to a peaceful protest, calling on the UN to recognise the National Unity Government of Myanmar and its permanent representative at the UN, Mo Tun. A group of security officers in plain clothes appeared using sticks to beat the protesters and firing a few shots. 29 protests were arrested, including a few students and youth activists. And the CTUM, uh, uh, one of the unions there, the Confederation of Trade Unions of Myanmar, the president of that union, Mong Mong, has issued a press statement condemning the inhuman and cruel attacks, expressing his respect for the revolutionary comrades who are devoted to the non-violent democratic struggle. In Australia, Indigenous employment experiences were front and centre at First Nations Workplace Symposium last month. In the lead up to the Jobs and Skills Summit this uh, last week, the, the First Nations Workplace Symposium brought together union members, community organisations, academics, peak bodies, practitioners and consultants to discuss workplace reforms for First Nations peoples across all industries. The Indigenous-only space meant that Indigenous voices were front and centre in all discussions. The Australian Council of Trade Union's Indigenous officer, Lara Watson, explained that previous governments and major corporations had made a raft of assumptions about First Nations people. Understanding the context of culture in work for First Nations people means supporting flexible hours and flexible models of work. It's about understanding and supporting cultural obligations in regard to work flexibility attending funerals and sorry business, understanding that First Nations people often live 24-7 in the communities with whom they work. The huge inequality First Nations workers face is a result of the failure to acknowledge a long history of Australian employment exclusion and racism. First Nations workers won't rest until there's equality for all and that means ensuring safe and respectful workplaces now and in the future. And in Indonesia, our last story for the morning, uh, on the 6th of July, in several cities across Indonesia, including Jakarta, students and civil society organisations and Indonesia's social opposition demonstrated against several parts of the new bill that would revise a country's existing criminal code. The demonstrations were large and spirited, but have not yet been followed up with more demonstrations. The protesters were opposed to proposed clauses on the criminalising of political acts such as insulting the President, government and other officials, as well as private acts such as in the realm of extramarital sexual relations, among other issues. In response to these demands and other protests, President Widodo asked the Minister for Human Rights and Law to once again carry out socialisation of key points in the legislation, which means a further delay in the bill being considered. The government continues to insist on selectively discussing certain sections of the bill with the public before they're introduced to Parliament. There has been sufficient opposition and criticism of this bill, the existing criminal code, which goes by the acronym KUHP. There's been significant criticism to that to force the delay of its passage, Nevertheless, the civil society critics have no substantial representation in Parliament. Given the unanimity of the key parties in government and Parliament on the proposed bill, the most likely outcome is that the bill will be passed with minimal amendments to mollify some of the social opposition. It seems likely that the outcome of these conflicts between the government and social opposition won't change. The only option for the social opposition strategy is to escalate those demonstrations. And that is news from around the region. We're going to go to some community announcements and then our feature interview for the morning with Dr Tess newton Kane. The revolution in Rojava is a beacon of hope for the world putting direct democracy and feminism into practice on a broad scale. This radical attempt at social transformation now faces huge challenges, including daily attacks by the Turkish military with little outside recognition or aid. Show your support for Rojava by joining North Syria Solidarity, or ness NES
1: and help ensure the survival of this inspiring experiment in social change.
0: NESS sends aid, raises awareness and builds solidarity. Get involved at www.nesssolidarity.org.au. NESS is a 3CR supporter. Listening to 3CR Community Radio. Come to me sweetly, this love of You're listening to Community Radio 3CR. It's 14 minutes past nine o'clock. Our guest coming up is Dr. Tess Newton Kane. She's a senior research fellow at Griffith University and she's an expert in Pacific Island politics and geopolitics. As we've been reporting consistently for the last couple of months, The constitutional crisis began in Kiribati when the cabinet of Kiribati suspended two of its court justices. High Court Judge David Lamborn was suspended on in May 2022, while Chief Justice Bill Hastings was suspended on the 30th of June both over allegations of misconduct. A court ruling overturned the suspension and subsequent deportation of Lamborn. but in response, the government suspended all judges from the Kiribati Court of Appeal on the 6th of September. Dr Tess, welcome to the show this morning.
1: Good morning. It's good to be
0: with you. Thank you so much. So firstly, we'll get into some of the political motivations underpinning, uh, underpinning these allegations in a moment, but in relation to these misconduct charges of these judges, t- tell me, what are they being accused of?
1: Well, it's. I mean, I think the issue is that we're not completely clear what the misconduct is. My understanding is that the government of Kiribati has not specified what the actual misconduct is that it's concerned about. During the various cases involving David Lambourne, um, we did hear reference from the government's lawyers to him being a national security threat and, and other things, but all of that was roundly dismissed. we was given very short shrift by the Court of Appeal that was then sitting. In terms of the actual tribunal into misconduct, I'm not aware that that tribunal has been convened yet, and as I said, we, we really don't know what exactly it is that the government... Seek to deal with. And this kind of all adds to this issue of, you know, the, the apparent political motivation of this entire exercise.
0: Well, what is the apparent political motivation then, in your view?
1: Well, I mean, based on what I've heard from uh, a number of people, including uh, David Lambourne himself, um, it seems to be that this is very much an attack on his wife who is the leader of the parliamentary opposition. And so this seems to be very much a, an attempt to persuade Tessie to, to, to step out of politics and to, to move away from that. She's obviously, she's raised a number of concerns about governance issues in Kiribati under this current government around reopening a protected uh, maritime area for commercial fishing, about um, apparent influence of the Chinese, um, government in what's going on in Kiribati and about other aspects of the way that this government is performing, um, and so she's obviously very much a thorn in the side of the administration. And um, you know, her husband being a non-Kiribati person is obviously a bit of a target, and that this has kind of ballooned down to ballooned out, I should say, into. Um, an attack on the judiciary as a whole and i think it's really very worrying
0: yeah it's very worrying i do want to go to though the um the criticisms that are being raised from the opposition because uh it would only um, turn into is such a such a Wild attempt to um, sack all of the judges. If the opposition was garnering support, can you talk a little bit about how much support there is in Kiribati for um, not going down a China support route, and um, it, just the broader environmental implications of the um, commercial fishing proposals?
1: So it's it's not easy to gauge um, the what's going on in Kiribati in terms of public opinion there's not a lot comes out in terms of media and reporting and also I think it's important to remember that within the the broader cultural structures in Kiribati the idea that you would criticize leadership or ask difficult questions is not something that's very well entrenched or established so it's not easy to garner it's not easy to gauge the levels of opposition or concern. We heard recently from former President Anote Tong, who was here in Australia, that he certainly felt that um, some of the decisions of this current government were very concerning, and he referenced opening up the the Phoenix Islands area as one of those, and he certainly indicated that there was a level of uh, concern uh, among the wider community. I've also heard recently that there is discussion among the parliamentary opposition about seeking to bring a motion of no confidence in the current leadership, I, I've not heard whether that's actually gone ahead in Kiribati. If a motion of no confidence is brought and is successful, the result is that the country immediately goes to general elections and, and a new, a new um, legislature is elected. So it's quite a, you know, it's quite a sort of significant event if it happens. So it's not something that people take lightly.
0: Well, I want to go to the nationality of the judges that have been suspended. Uh, and you obviously mentioned that Judge David Lamborn is Australian, so he's not uh, from Kiribati. Uh, it's clear that all of these judges are either New Zealanders or Australians. Firstly, why is Kiribati so dependent on Australia and New Zealand for its higher court judges? And then my follow-up to that is... Does that, in fact, putting aside some of the political motivations that you've talked about, and the undermining of um, the constitution in uh, in the Pacific in, in Kiribati, does ha- have flooding the judiciary with New Zealanders and Australians undermine self determination in Kiribati?
1: Yeah. So I think it's important, you know, and um, you know, a, a sort of an associate colleague, an associate scholar, Anna Jedgetz, as. A, studied this in great detail, if you look across the Pacific as a whole, it's not unusual to have non-citizen judges, particularly, as you say, in the higher courts, so the Supreme Court and the courts of appeal. And there are a few reasons for that. One is that you know it, uh, it takes a while to get the kind of judicial and legal experience to sit as a judge. Um, so, you know, you kind of have to build up to that. And, for, you know, I mean, I when I taught law at USP in 1997, that was the first time a lot of Pacific Island countries had had access to a law degree for people that wanted to go into the legal profession. So it's still quite a kind of building uh, cadre, if you like. The other is that in a lot of um, small countries, so particularly Kiribati, places like Kiribati, Nauru, that have very small populations, the use of an outsider, a non-citizen judge, allows for a greater sense and a greater, uh, a greater um, faith in the independence of the court. In, in small countries, it would be very difficult to find a judge that wasn't somehow related or connected with one of the parties in the case, whether that's a civil case or a criminal case. So it's not just Kiribati that has this dependency. Um, It's common across the the region, particularly in terms of courts of appeal. A number of countries don't have permanent courts of appeal. They kind of just come in and and work maybe once or twice a year. Whether it undermines the the self-determination, I think it's important to remember what the role of the judiciary is. So it's not the role of the judiciary to set policy for a country. It's not the role of the judiciary to enact legislation. That's the role of the legislature. It's the role of the, judici- the judiciary to interpret and apply that legislation. So that separation of powers means that, whilst the judiciary is very important and a really important arm of the state, it's not able to. There is that separation, and it's not. It's not leading the country. It's not making policy decisions, and it's not enacting legislation.
0: Well, I mean, you mentioned that um, Kiribati is small. It's a nation of 120,000 people approximately. It's a republic. It's made up of about 32 atolls and a remote coral island in Micronesia. So it's very spread out and a very small population. Uh, How... How what kind of matters and how many matters actually go to the court of appeal, uh, and and you also mentioned that the court of appeal isn't doesn't sit permanently. So uh, what I'm trying to get at is what is the impact? How big is the impact of suspending um, all of the judges of the court of appeal? What's the consequence? I guess basically, how much crime is there in in Kiribati?
1: Well, I mean, I think you know the the role of the court. It's not. I mean. I think we also need to remember that the, the High Court has also been suspended. So there is no functioning High Court. There is no functioning Court of Appeal. But when the High Court was was taken out of action, the Court of Appeal was able to hear some High Court matters as a, a Court of First Instance because it has that kind of residual jurisdiction. So basically there is no superior court functioning in Kiribati, and that has a huge impact on... Uh, criminal cases, on civil cases, on commercial cases. So you know, it, it kind of doesn't matter whether there's a bit of a bit of litigation and caseload, or a big bit, or a lot. The fact is that none of this is able to be closed. Anything that requires a jurisdiction above that of the magistrates' court, and the magistrates' court is where most crime is dealt with anyway. But anything else, whether it's a a land case or a um, a commercial case. A civil case between parties. None of that can be heard at the moment because there isn't uh, there isn't the, the the apparatus in place to take it forward.
0: How do you think this constitutional crisis is going to be resolved?
1: Yeah, it's very hard to say. Um, the president of Kiribati spoke at the United Nations General Assembly recently. Within the last day or so, made reference to this sense that he has that. His country is being, um, or his government is being uh, picked on and, you know, treated very badly by the international community. Um, He's obviously taken this very hard. He doesn't, there's no sign that he's seeking to change his position. Um, I guess, you know, one way of resolving it would be if there were to be a motion of no confidence and if that were to be successful, I don't know what the timeline on that might be. But it's it's quite obvious in terms of what we've seen with this government over a period of time and then Kiribati withdrawing from the Pacific Islands Forum that, you know, this this government under Ma'amate is is seeking to be quite sort of insular and isolated, not really looking for support from outside and seeing uh, any kind of commentary or anything else as, as an attack, so... Yeah, it's, it's hard to see what's going to happen next. But certainly there is, you know, I think it's important to remember that the rights of all e people are at risk when there's no functioning judiciary to um, to apply the laws to protect them.
0: Well, Dr Tess newton Kane, thank you so much for your time on the program and certainly an area to watch in the coming months as this issue continues to develop.
1: Thank you. It was good to talk to you.
0: That was Dr. Tess newton Kane. She's a senior research fellow at Griffith University and an expert in Pacific Island politics and geopolitics talking about the constitutional crisis in Kiribati. It is 26 minutes past nine o'clock here on Community Radio 3CR.
1: Black Spark is an independent, volunteer-run bookshop,
0: gallery, music and community space in Northcote, Nam, dedicated to creativity, learning and liberation. Black Spark is a space for the entire community, free of charge, hosting art, music and literary events. To keep Black Spark free, open and accessible to everybody, we need your help. We are calling for your support for our rent fundraiser to keep our doors open into the coming years. With your support, we can continue to host book and exhibition launches, art auctions, fundraisers, music gigs and facilitate opportunities and growth for emerging artists and grassroots communities. For more information, visit Keep Black Spark Alive on chuffed.com or check out Black Spark on all the socials. Keep Black Spark Alive. A 3CR supporter. Well, that does bring us to the end of another Asia-Pacific Currents here on Community Radio 3CR. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. I forgot at the start of the show to thank Annie for another spectacular Solidarity Breakfast show. Um, But, of course, coming up next is Palestine Remembered.